RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of The Trek Files is brought to you by the Eagle Moss Shop, home of official Star Trek collectibles, including rare and highly prized Starship models from all Star Trek TV series and related productions. Use the promo code MISSIONLOG for 10% off of your order at shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash MISSIONLOG. The Trek Files, Season 3, Episode 15, A Hole in the Universe, NBC Standards Department, March 26, 1973. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. All right, Star Trek fans, all you background fans, you canonistas, I say that lovingly, uh, and of course, all you Trekophiles with an F. And I think today, especially all you students of network standards and practices... <laughs> And especially animated series fans. We've got a treat on several levels for this week's episode. Uh, obviously, as always, check out our documents of the week over at uh, Facebook at our page, The Trek Files. Follow along with us. We've got a special guest back with us today. But take a listen to this segment from today's uh, kickoff document, and I'll be right back with our guest. <laughs> The program material reviewed would appear to be acceptable for scripting under current NBC broadcast standards with the following qualifications. Page 3. Obviously, Chekhov cannot be made to say something dirty, even in Russian. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey fans of the Eagle Moss official Star Trek starships, be it the original collection of five, six inch starships, or the larger Star Trek Discovery collection, or the even larger XL editions. For those of you looking to complete your collections, or simply purchase single starships for yourselves or as gifts, well, your ships have come in. Literally. Yes, the Eagle Moss shop is open and ready to do business, and listeners of the track files can enjoy an extra 10% off selected models. Here's what you do. Go to shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash mission log, and just take a look at the variety of ships waiting for you there. Many of them are shop exclusives. I can't believe some of these. There's Rick Sternbach's early concept model for the USS Voyager. Uh, there's the now legendary interface USS Defiant from the original series episode, The Tholian Web, <laughs> and it glows in the dark. Yes, beautifully. And yeah. there's the Phase 2 concept Enterprise. It's my favorite. The USS Titan. I mean, look, just look around, and you're sure to find a ship, or five, yes. <laughs> that scream out, buy me, I'm yours. Your, your shelves are looking empty, so uh, that's <laughs> what you need to do. Now, of course, these ships are officially authorized by CBS Studios. Each and every model is die-cast, hand-painted, and comes with a display-based stand, plus an in-depth magazine featuring exclusive artwork and highlights the ship's history, design, and place in Star Trek lore. So to order, engage at shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash 
slash mission log and enter the promo code mission log. That's all one word, M-I-S-S-I-O-N-L-O-G, at checkout and receive an extra 10% off your order. Yes, I know the promo code is mission log. We'll throw those guys a bone. <laughs> all right. So you know where to go, shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash mission log. And thanks again to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. All right, Trekophiles. Uh, yes, you may be figuring out that with the uh, the dating on this document, uh, 1973, we're actually into animated series days. And you're saying, what is this about Chekhov? That's okay. You're probably also saying, what is this episode, A Hole in the Universe? Well, that's a mystery that we're going to unravel today. And we're going to do it in fine style, talking about everything from animated Star Trek to censors to publicists and everything in between. If you've been listening in recent weeks, you probably know by now that my guest is one of our best friends of the show so far, <laughs> Fred Bronson. Thanks for coming back with us, Fred. Larry, anytime. I'm always, and you, you, you gave me lunch, so I'm going to be here every day now. <laughs> well, Fred, you've been a, a, you know, a writer also in that time. Uh, many credits on many things. You worked with Dick Clark for years. We've, we've mentioned uh, 12 years doing uh, writing the New Year's Rock and Eve Show twenty years of um, American Music Awards, American Music Awards specials galore, um, animated series credits with Star Trek. Going back to your, go back if you missed our episodes with Fred earlier, you've got to go back and hear them. Um, but before we leave it, I want you to tell me the Dick Clark story, the spe- the fastest sale you ever made. Oh yeah, that story because I had so many uh, over many years. Well. I started working uh, – I, I had worked with Jack as a publicist. He had an Ed Sullivan-type show that lasted 13 weeks in 1978. <laughs> and then I left NBC in 82, moved to London for a year, came back and decided to write full-time and found employment at the Clark Productions in radio, which quickly became writing for television. At the same time, I was writing my first book, which was – the Billboard Book of Number One Hits, the story of every song that went to number one. And Dick, in his office, had a huge wall of books about rock and roll. So I couldn't wait, when my first shipment arrived, to present him with a copy of my book. So I walked into his office, and I said, "Uh, Dick, I have something for you. It's a book. I wrote it, and I thought you'd like to have it. And I said, by the way, I think this might make a great TV special. Mm -hmm. And he looked at the book and said, how fast do you want it to happen? I thought it was a trick question. So I said, fast? And he said, all right, hang on. He called the president of the company who reported to Dick and said, make a deal with Fred. We're going to turn his book into a special. And we did. And it aired on ABC. And it was the easiest thing I've ever sold in my life. I've never repeated anything quite that quickly. I was just watching it on a timer. That sounds like 10 seconds. It was about that, yeah. <laughs> if they could only all be 10 seconds. I would, yeah, that would be great. So <laughs> that was that was the start of a very long and wonderful relationship with Dick. Right. Well, again, the the hats that you wore as writer, we've talked about, and, uh, and publicist, we've talked about. I want to talk about them some more. People may be saying, Larry, why do you have um, uh, a memo here this week, a document about the censor notes 
on this bizarre and apparently unknown Star Trek episode. Now, you just you told me you you're not familiar with this. Animated. I had never heard of this episode until you told me about it. And you it. were the publicist for the animated series. Yes, but since that episode was never made, it never came across my desk. Uh, yeah, apparently by the time they decided not to do it, they were moving on to something else. Well, this the Stay with me. There's a method to my madness here. <laughs> so A Hole in the Universe, which is, looks like it was supposed to be episode two. The first couple were uh, Beyond the Farthest Star and right. then Yesteryear, very famously opened the animated series. Right. Um, a Hole in the Universe was by Larry Niven. Now, animated series fans should know that The Slaver Weapon was written by Larry Niven. And it actually, it kind of came out of his known, universe, uh, known space stories, his universe there. Kind of it, maybe some people love that story, but it kind of awkwardly knitted together the Star Trek universe and his known space stories. So um, this was actually another story from his universe, from known space, that was pitched first and bought. And we have correspondents, Dorothy and Jean, talking about this. And it, yes, it was ultimately dropped. Basically, it was about raiders that used a black hole to hide and poach passing freighters and passing cargo ships and hop out. And... Um, Apparently bloody. But I love this document, A, because it's from a show that we don't know otherwise. Right. But even more so, anyone who's read The Making of Star Trek, Stephen Poe, anyone who's uh, been around a series as a writer knows the job that, quote-unquote, you know, standards and practices broadcast that. The censors, right? And some of them are infamous that were recorded. This is animation. This is Saturday morning animation. Um we heard the one Chekhov. Now again, Chekhov had not been written out of the cast yet. That decision hadn't been made. But the point being, obviously, Chekhov cannot be made to say something dirty, even in Russian. Now this is Larry Niven's pitch or whatever right. his, his story document. Right. Did you see uh, like some of these? Like these are such typical censor type comments. Um, if a spacecraft is to be intentionally destroyed, <laughs> unacceptable to establish there were passengers or or navigators aboard. Right? I mean. Well, You're a writer I have, and a publicist, so you've encountered censors. But I have to say, yes. that was for Saturday morning. And that's another Something yeah. like that wouldn't have applied to a one-hour primetime show. But Saturday morning, now, the rules were never written down because rules kept changing. Our mores kept changing. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, a sense, they, they didn't call themselves censors, by the way. They called themselves, you know... Broadcast standards. The point that the broadcast standards person, and in this case it's Ted Cordes, is saying here, uh, it was because it was a Saturday morning show. And definitely the rules were different for different day parts. Although it came along a couple years later, Saturday Night Live, airing at 11.30, could say things that you couldn't say at 8 o'clock. And you could say things at 8 o'clock that you couldn't say at 10 in the morning. (laughs) So even though Star Trek was enjoyed by adults as well as children, Saturday morning is still considered children's viewing hour. And there were, for example, you could never kill or injure a child on a Saturday morning show. Mm -hmm. Even injure. Uh, well, it depends how serious the injury was. Uh, <laughs> Busted knee. Was you like, could yeah, do that. Scraped knee or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you couldn't do anything violent to a, to a child. That would just, not, you know, that was a no-go. And I have to say that Filmation, which was the production company, mm-hmm. they, they knew the rules. And they knew what was going to go and what wasn't going to go. Now, this was early on. And, you know, we don't know at what point. Early on for animated series. 
Yeah, right. yeah. Early in the animated series history, uh, obviously way before it went on the air. This letter is dated March 26th. Oh, Diana Ross's birthday, 1970. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy's <laughs> birthday, too, I believe, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, what a coincidence. <laughs> oh, Fred. <laughs> uh, so uh, the the... We don't know if Filmation had had, you know, gone over this episode yet, mm-hmm. but they knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. And Filmation wanted to continue to have a good working relationship with the networks and some they, more shows. There were, there were producers, not on Saturday morning, there were producers who would try to sneak things in or they'd go really far with something and knowing that the censor would say, you can't do that, but then they might let something else go through. That they really wanted in the show, but they were right. They they disguised it by having something else that was so awful it had to come out. I was going to say they turn it up to eleven, yeah, so that they they can get their point through on six, right? Exactly, or whatever, right? That happened a lot, like on shows like Laugh In, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which well, was on your also on NBC on your on NBC, yeah. So, yes. I, and again, but, but this is for animation, yes. But there were even. And again, they've been memorialized. We're going to have some on our show, but even going back to the making of Star Trek was one of the fun points that used to, you know, a caution against the open mouth kiss. Or if the hypo is administered, it must be by Dr. McCoy, not Mr. Spock. I mean, those kinds of, you know, sensor notes. Right. Um, and here, uh, Saturday morning, make clear to the viewer that the weapon used is set to stun rather than kill. The physical conflict between the men must be, not be graphic or violent. Only <laughs> brief wrestling. Um, and then his, even Captain Kirk's reaction to this body disappearing into the black hole cannot be undo. His reaction cannot be horrified, too horrified or too great. Right. But that's, I, well, mean, I would think I the think animators would say, we're not going to spend money on that contorted face anyway. We're, there's only so far we can go. Sure. But I totally understand where, where this is coming from, that you don't want a seven-year-old traumatized by something that's horrific. You, you just want right. You know, you don't. You know, if they're watching it with their parents, you don't want their parents to say, "What the hell is going on on Saturday morning?" And also, five years from after this, things would have changed already and continue to mm-hmm. change. Now we see things on TV that if well, we saw them back in 1974, we'd be horrified. We, well, true, but I mean, now there is no Saturday morning now. Well, that's true. You're just watching 24/7 animation on. You've got cable. Nickelodeon and right. Cartoon Network, and, and or you've got Adult Swim, and 14 right. year olds are watching. You know, right. or eight year olds are watching Adult. So Swim. So you can do, but you can look at South Park. Right. Not considered a children's show at all, and you can do things. It's also not on a broadcast network. But let's let's stop though and think. Now you promoted, you were the, in charge of promoting animated series. That was not typical Saturday morning fare. Was it? No, was it, it really in a? Was it? Was that a disadvantage to be one foot in both worlds, or was that the shining star in everyone? Because it's the only Star Trek that ever won a writing Emmy, right. production Emmy. Right. Uh, I think it was a perfect combination because, like Bullwinkle, it was a show that could be watched by adults and children. And people would get different things out of it. Mm -hmm. So it had, it took some very clever, intelligent people to write a show. And I don't mean me because I wrote one, but to write a show that would work on both levels, that a child could enjoy it and get something out of it. And an adult could also enjoy it and maybe get something else out out of the story or see something in the story that 
would have gone over a child's head, for example. Yeah. Well, I mean, we wound up with, you know, the Brady kids. I mean, <laughs> there were some sequels on Saturday morning, but nothing like, what, original writers, original producers. Right. Sequels to original episodes. Uh, like you say, a lot of the people who wrote for the original because Dorothy Fontana was mm-hmm. in charge. Was Wranglers. And Jean, despite what people may look at on titles, Jean was constantly working with her. Yes. On, or she was getting feedback from Jean. On he read every script, gave notes. Yes. yes. Which we have in the files, and we're eventually getting around to Should we talk about the to. note on my episode? I want to hear some notes. that you, This is not your episode, but let's no. talk about some notes we know about. Because well, You know what? Let's start. Let's back up. This giant John Hancock of a signature hit. Yes. Ted Cordes. You kind of tossed his name off earlier, like you knew you were familiar. Uh, Ted and I are friends to this day, actually. Uh, he's since retired, and I left NBC a long time ago, but we've been lifelong friends. And when we were doing Star Trek, the animated series, we would go out to Filmation and Reseda when they had an episode ready, and we'd watch it on a moviola. And for those people too young to know what a moviola is... It's a very small machine with a small screen, and they would actually run the film. Your hand cranking in the air here. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was I, an editor's tool. Also, yes, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't think they were actually hand cranking while we were watching, but it felt yeah. like it. Yeah, but they would put it on the reel, and the reel would run, and we'd watch the episode. I'd be watching to see, get ideas for publicity, and Ted would be watching to make sure they didn't violate any rules mm-hmm. of broadcast standards. And one day we had a very interesting incident. Oh, do tell. And so it was the sequel to Shore Leave. Oh, uh, uh, Once Upon a Planet. Once Upon a Planet. And there's a scene where Dr. McCoy is standing on a southern plantation, green lawn stretching out in every direction, his back to the camera. I put camera in quotes because there's, mm-hmm. you know. And we're watching and... I see this yellow stream coming out of him. And nobody says anything, and we keep going. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did we just see? Can we go back? So they roll it back on the movieola and show it to us again. And Dr. McCoy has taken a leak. And we're going, what the hell? And Ted is especially going. An editorial comment about plantation slavery is one thing. But, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, really. And Ted said, you can't do that. Well, they had put it in as a joke for his benefit purely. Now, the problem is when you joke around like that, Ted had to make sure, okay, you're joking, but we really need to make sure this gets cut out and does not air Right on NBC. Now, did they have that point of view from McCoy's back moment? Did that survive the episode? Do you know? Uh, I believe we, we saw his back, but we okay. definitely did not see the stream. We're just missing one element from the animation. That layer was yanked yes. from the stack. So we actually have a blooper on an animated show, which, if you think about it, is kind of impossible. <laughs> all half of all bloopers, though, were not uh, accidents. True, by the way. right? Yeah. That's amazing. Did, did Counterclock have a have any any feedback from? No such leak. I mean, no such incident. <laughs> Well, good. Well, good. But Ted and you, that's amazing. I bet not many publicists took a trip over to watch animation Saturday morning. Uh, I was probably the only one. (laughs) 
Well, but it was Star Trek. Of yeah. course, I was going to do it, and, and we'd go have lunch before, so that was like a bonus. And you were, and you were you. That's that's awesome. Now, we, you also mentioned the CC list at the bottom here. Yes. Well, the first name on the list, I think, was a typo. <laughs> I hope that was a typo. Yes, because it's addressed to D. Fantana. <laughs> Uh, so we know that's Dorothy Fontana. Of course, Lou Scheimer. Right. From, L. Scheimer. From Filmation. Uh, Jay Petrie was Ted's boss in Broadcast Standards. Jay Taratero was Joe Taratero, who was head of programming for Saturday morning for NBC. And this last gentleman uh, was also Broadcast Standards. There's a couple names here I don't recognize, so I don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. But uh, did, it, did everybody... Um Again, this this interesting uh, position that Star Trek had as an animated. There was, I don't know how the budgets compared for your typical, you know, superhero Saturday morning um, fair, but was there a sense of that two level sense of it's for adults and kids? And obviously, you have to you have to go at it like it's only kids watching. But did was there a, a pride in the network, pride this, at filmation? Uh, I, f- I felt there was. That it was something special and not just your typical Saturday morning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This was a cut above. And it was Star Trek coming back to television. Uh, you know, as a publicist, I treated it like the second coming of Star Trek and treated it like a primetime show. Uh, most Saturday morning shows did not get the attention that I lavished <laughs> on the animated St- Star Trek series. Right. But I wasn't going to let this one go. But it deserved it, right. Um, yeah. and, and, I, and so, at times, I see Dorothy in her writing, and her even today talking about on the other end of that, defending Star Trek, animated Star Trek, even to fans, right. as not a kiddie show version, and, right. and saying, "No, look, we've got the original writers." And I think anybody who watched it, mm-hmm. and I bet a lot of fans have never seen the animated series. Uh, it's really good. I tell people all the time, if you've never seen it, go get the box set. It's there on DVD. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really worth your time. It's only 22 half hours, so you could probably watch it in a day. You could binge watch it easily. And there are some, there's clinkers. But, you know, Yesteryear is a shining example and, and beyond. I, I would put that up against the finest of any Star Trek series. Well, the test of time has shown time and again how it's been solidified into canon and picked right. up by all generations of, of writers. Right. And even, uh, as we said before, Robert April. Well, one of my two contributions to Star Trek lore is uh, Robert April. And who knew that we'd still be talking about him all these years later? And, you know, I think down the line, maybe the uh, 11th or 12th series coming out of the new generation of Star Trek might just be that fabled I'm counting on that. Robert April series. Yes. Right, right. The new Enterprise. It's going to be, uh, he's going to get together with one of the Voyager crew. It's going to be called April in Paris. <laughs> oh, God. Did not see that in <laughs> Trek of Files, I did not see that coming. All right. Well, on that note, Fred, <laughs> which I think is a B-flat. No. It's a pretty terrible note. <laughs> no. This has been awesome to have you back once again. I, I'm happy to come back anytime. I'm just thrilled to hear about you and Ted's lunches. You and Ted's excellent adventures at Filmation. And, 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 they, and they're living, what, it's 45 years later? Here we are. Yeah. Here we are. And thank you, though, for being here and sharing them with us once again. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All our documents are available right there at Facebook, facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. 
And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at LarryNemacek.com. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.